0: does something magical to the whole genre and the relationship with the genre in Soviet society and politics and culture. In other words, science fiction suddenly becomes legit. The Soviet side was a lot more uneven, heterogeneous, and independent than we like to think. American audiences and critics are perhaps a little more provincial than they like to think of themselves.
1: first, like, real non-approved American film I ever saw was The Running Man. The film completely destroyed all of my perceptions of what the movie is. I've never seen Schwarzenegger before, (laughs) and I never knew people could be like that.
2: there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. And on today's show, we're going to talk about Soviet science fiction. Mostly sci-fi movies, but some talk of literature slips in as well. I actually have a bit of a personal relationship with Soviet movies. I didn't start studying the Russian language until I was about 18. And that was when I was a freshman at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where I went to undergraduate school. I started just kind of on my own, visiting the school library to watch movies like Ballad of a Soldier, The Cranes Are Flying, Come and See. Oof, I remember that one. Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears, Autumn Marathon, To Kill a Dragon. That's a good one. And then there were some post-Soviet films too, like Brother, Burned by the Sun. Uh, the college actually hosted screenings of Russian Ark, and The Return, and even Watch. And that last one was possible because I actually returned home from studying abroad in Moscow with a bootlegged DVD of Nightwatch. So you're welcome. You see Santa Cruz circa... 2003 or whatever maybe it was 2004 anyway this was all obviously almost 20 years ago when it still wasn't very easy to find access to these films online from home And you know i had to go to this dedicated space in the library to see this stuff and the film library in UC santa cruz was or maybe still is underground on the bottom floor of the building and going there you actually felt a bit like you were walking into a science lab yourself This is also where I saw Andrei Tarkovsky's sci-fi epic Solaris and Stalker, which were released in 1972 and 1979. If you've ever seen a Tarkovsky film, you know it's a rich, very challenging experience. Watching these movies was an important part of my education about Russia, but I'm a child of Hollywood first and foremost. That's maybe why I took such an interest recently in an internet meme I saw making the rounds on social media last month. The image compares movie aliens in Soviet and American films, contrasting the familiar, mostly attractive humanoids of Soviet cinema to the horrifying monsters of movies like Predator, The Thing, Alien, and apparently a 1983 British sci-fi movie called Extro. I had never heard of it. I still haven't seen it. It looks interesting. And also terrible. Anyway, the meme was clearly suggesting that Soviet filmmakers embraced the outside world while Americans and Westerners are a bunch of scared xenophobes. Only a xenophobe could dream up the xenomorph, I guess. This dumb internet meme got me thinking. Of course, there's no denying that Hollywood captures and expresses many of the biases and the fears inherent in American society. But what can we learn from comparing Soviet sci-fi movies to sci-fi movies made in Hollywood and in the West? How different are these two worlds of cinema? That's the subject of this week's show.
0: I'm going to actually push against that binary a little bit because it's a little more complicated than saying that there is this contrast.
2: That's an Indita Banerjee, an associate professor at Cornell University's Department of Comparative Literature, whose research focuses on science fiction and technocultural studies, environmental humanities, media studies, and migration studies across Russia, Central Asia, the Indian subcontinent and Latin and African Americas. She serves on the faculty advisory board of the Atkinson Center for Sustainability and as the chair of the Humanities Concentration in the Environment and Sustainability Program. Professor Banerjee has written extensively about Soviet science fiction, and she warned me that the USSR and the USA have more in common here than many might assume.
0: Obviously, you know, conditions of production were very different, you know, starting with access to space and film stock and so forth, and getting past, you know, the bureaucracy of censorship and all of this was very different in the Soviet Union. But in terms of, if you want to think about science fiction as a kind of an education in imagining education and imagining otherwise, a kind of in education and desires and aspirations, then I think that we find a lot more similarities and also the fact that the Soviet side was a lot more uneven, heterogeneous, and independent than we like to think.
2: Dr. Benerji argues that the space age, which made science fiction a truly global popular phenomenon, inspired Soviet and American writers and filmmakers alike. With these shared roots, how much sense does it really make to treat these cultures as so distinct?
0: The way that I like to think about this space age that I've written quite extensively about is also this weird mirroring because it was because of the Sputnik launch and the beginning of the space race that American readers and academics even began to be aware that the Soviet Union had this rich history of science fiction, both of science fiction literature, of course, but, you know, going as far back as, say, 1908, Alexander Bogdanov's Red Star, the first Bolshevik (laughs) utopia, going back to way before the revolution, really, but also in cinema, 1924, right, Yakov Pritazanov's Ailita, which was one of the earliest full-length feature films in the genre that was made anywhere in the world. Some say it is the first science fiction movie uh- on the global stage. But what happened with the American hyper-awareness of Sputnik in 1957, that this is when we beef up our science education, right? I mean, it changed everything. It changed K-12 schools, it changed universities, and it also suddenly made American readers and fans aware of this whole scene. On the Soviet side, though, The history is also equally uneven and heterogeneous because your early 20th century science fiction was not really a thing in terms of official literature, right? It's not socialist realism. In fact, science fiction during the Stalin years had been driven underground for almost three decades, right? So there was this limit, these limits in the Soviet context that were put on on the imagination, on the horizon of the imagination. After this suddenly comes 1957, Sputnik, then all the whole world's eyes turn towards this little soccer ball-sized thing, right, that the Soviet released. And this does something magical to the whole genre and the relationship with the genre in Soviet society and politics and culture. In other words, science fiction suddenly becomes legit, It's okay to play with it?
2: Dr. Banerjee says the launch of Sputnik and the sudden legitimization of science fiction not only opened the doors to new authors and creators, but it also instigated an archival process wherein the Soviet Union returned to those underground texts from the Stalin years and cited them as evidence of the USSR's rich heritage in the genre.
0: What for me is most interesting in the late 50s and uh, the 60s that is happening is that in the Soviet Union, there is this major archival project of recuperating our rich history of science fiction, where we were like way ahead of the West in our imaginative horizons way back when. So, all of these classics, you know, Tsiolkovsky, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, the grandfather of the Soviet space program, right? Khrushchev posthumously honored him on the Red Square. So, Tsiolkovsky wrote science fiction. That was his medium. In 1895, he wrote his first science fiction story called Nalune on the Moon. And then he wrote a lot of science fiction. It's not brilliant literature, but it was also his ideas, which were really far out and crazy sounding. Back in those days, nobody really recognized him as a legitimate scientist. So, all the way, you know, here is our heritage. There was this whole heritage project that the space age started as far as science fiction as a serious mode of social education in the Soviet Union. And so all kinds of people who don't fit the normative boundaries on literature came rushing back, were republished.
2: There's a specific example of one of these reclaimed stories that stands out in Dr. Banerjee's memory. In fact, it involves a story that helped hook her interest in Russian science fiction even as a child, an adventure novel written by Alexander Beliaev in 1928 titled Amphibian Man. The book is about an Argentinian doctor who gives his son a set of shark gills in an operation to save the boy's life, but the procedure renders him largely unable to interact with the world outside the water, creating a tale of survival under extreme conditions, and questioning the general moral integrity of scientific experiments. If that plot sounds vaguely familiar to modern moviegoers, it may be because it loosely resembles Guillermo del Toro's 2017 fantasy drama, The Shape of Water, where the humanoid fish creature in the movie is credited at the end as the amphibian man, an homage, Dr. Banerjee believes, to the USSR's 1962 film adaptation of Beliaev's
0: book. It's a really sad story because he was a best-selling author. 1962, Vladimir Chibotaryov comes, takes this novel called The Amphibian Man and makes it into this brilliant, brilliant experiment in underwater cinema. So he wanted Jacques Cousteau, who was doing his marine television series in France at that time. They couldn't afford Cousteau, so they went ahead and made a Soviet project of it. The setting is Buenos Aires, the Rio de la Plata, a River Estuary. They went to Baku to simulate it, right, on their low budget. And there are all kinds of interesting kind of constraints on infrastructure and equipment in that movie. But what to me is fascinating is that in 62, it was okay to go back and adapt a story written by this writer who was really disgraced by the Union of Soviet Writers in the 30s and driven to despair, and to make that story into a new internationalist kind of film language. Also, the newly decolonizing Global South alliances between the Soviet Union and that friendship of the people, everything is there. In that very popular, made for popular consumption, it did become a very, very popular movie. It was sent to the first uh, festival of science fiction cinema in Trieste, Italy, the following year, 63. But you know what is really cool? If you saw Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, which won Best Film and the Oscars a few years ago.
2: The only thing that comes to mind is a poem whispered by someone in love. Hundreds of years ago, unable to perceive the shape of you, I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart, for you are everywhere.
0: That is a kind of a flip of The Amphibian Man, this 1962 film. I'm not sure if Del Toro is familiar with the original novel from 1928, but in the credits even, that creature is 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 credited as The Amphibian Man, which I don't think is coincidental. More than that, the setting of Guillermo Del Toro's film, The Shape of Water, is Baltimore in 1962. And of course, it's a Soviet-American spy novel as well. I happened upon a Bengali translation of The Amphibian Man on my neighbor's shelf when I was maybe 12 or 13. And so that was my first encounter that sucked me in. And then I saw the movie with my dad. (laughs) And and that's what got us started.
2: What drew you to the book? I mean, it was just, did it have like an uh, interesting cover art or what what among all the books drew you to that one?
0: You know, it had a beautiful art deco type of cover.
2: Unfortunately, this is the part of the podcast where the show's purely audio nature comes up short. As the father of a 10-year-old girl, plus some younger kids who don't yet read, I really wanted to know what kind of cover art is gripping enough to get a child to want to read a book from the 1920s about a fish man. If you want to see the cover art for yourself, please check Medusa's website where I've published an image of the exact books that inspired Dr. Banerjee in her childhood. The artwork is indeed very cool. The 1962 film Amphibian Man is on YouTube. You can watch all 96 minutes of it free of charge. Whether it's a pirated copy and illegally present on the site, I don't know. I looked it over but I confess that I found it very hard to enjoy. Honestly, like most movies from before the late 1970s, just a few years before I was born. The set design, the makeup, the costumes, everything looks cheap in comparison to the action I've come to know and expect in science fiction movies. Even when you compare the very best of the best in Russian Hollywood, it seems obvious to me that classics like Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was released in 1968, are infinitely more captivating and visually spectacular than even the pinnacle of Soviet science fiction movies like, say, Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris or Stalker. This confidence in the unchallenged dominance of American movies, however, is some quintessential American thinking, and it's a bit narrow-minded, warns Dr. Banerjee.
0: Hollywood, of course, is a is a giant. It's, it's an engine of globalization with tremendous resources. But are we constructing the proper frame to compare, right, the two industries? Because a lot of popular Soviet science fiction movies did get distributed quite widely. And here you have to flip the map. Maybe not in the US, but all over the global south. In Latin America, where did Guillermo del Toro get his thing? One day I intend to ask him. And so, um, yeah, no, this is an actual archival question for me to ask the filmmaker. So in Africa, in Asia, Soviet science fiction films were all over the place and books too translated. So this is, a, if you will, a counter-hierarchical project that has always been part of my fascination with science fiction and the Soviet Union. So I think we need to triangulate your question, rather than divide it into two parts, the U.S. versus Soviet, into the Cold War as a global thing.
2: What you're also saying is that it's possible that Americans just don't realize how popular Soviet science fiction movies were or are.
0: Yeah. What I'm saying is that American audiences and critics are perhaps a little more provincial than they like to think of themselves.
2: I want to return to that internet meme I described at the top of the show, the comparison of alien monsters in Soviet and Hollywood science fiction movies. I first saw the image in a Twitter thread shared by Slava Malamud, a sports journalist and a math teacher with Moldovan roots who now lives in the United States. Slava established himself as a colorful, insightful commentator on Soviet cinema and cinema about the USSR when HBO's Chernobyl miniseries aired a couple of years ago. His tweets recalling his stepfather's experience as part of the USSR's military cleanup following the nuclear disaster even attracted the attention of Chernobyl showrunner Craig Mazin. Regular listeners of this podcast will recognize that Slava joined me about a year ago to discuss Red Dawn and Hollywood's sort of comical vilifications of Russians in movies throughout the 1980s. The internet meme comparing sci-fi movie monsters in the USSR and the USA annoyed him too. I asked him why.
1: There are several levels of wrongness about this very broad generalization based on, <laughs> on a cherry-picked and a few cherry-picked cherry pictures of aliens. The first one is obviously because Soviet movie industry was not able to create monsters for purely technical reasons, and this is the, this goes the same for. I think if you look at the Soviet movie industry in the 80s. It was probably in pretty much the same place where the American one was in the 50s and 60s. So if you look at Star Trek in the 60s, most of the aliens there are very humanoid, and the aliens that are there, maybe for one episode, they could you know make make it some kind of a crude depiction of a, of a non-humanoid alien. But you know the Klingons, they're just basically Klingons. They just have darker skin. That's about it. They're just humans and that's that's how the soviets approached it they they would make most of their aliens as humanoid as possible because that was just the only way they could they could create it and it's not just uh science fictions there's no such thing as horror films in the, in, in the soviet union there is no such thing as um really gory violent films except for world war Two that was that that's where we were okay with portraying gratuitous violence violence in a very heroic way and it wasn't because of our <laughs> benevolence but it was simply because our our culture was very rigidly censored and was very there was very direct uh, strict ideas about what's proper and what's not proper to portray on stage in film, on TV what's proper and not proper to talk about in the music in the literature even so everything everything was very, conservative. And the third thing is the, the overreaching idea that we were not as xenophobic as Americans. Well, no, we, we were. <laughs> the, the only thing is, it was a different type of xenophobic. The United States, uh, by virtue of being an isolated nation and also a superpower, tends to not care about what other countries think about them. Uh, Americans tend to be very self-contained. You know, Americans have their own musical culture, uh, which, and then their own sports. And their own their own food culture, and they don't like borrowing from other countries because generally, you know, it's just you know far away, and Americans have this this sense of superiority. The Soviets also have a sense of superiority, which is also somehow very, very closely tied to a very deep-seated inferiority complex. Because we think we're great, we think we're amazing, but we also think we're deeply misunderstood, and nobody can ever get us right. And we always earn for approval. From foreign nations. At the same time, I mean, not just approval. We want the foreign nations to recognize how amazingly great and awesome we are. Whereas Americans couldn't give a damn. <laughs> the Russians want foreigners to come to them and tell them, "Your ballet is the best. Your soccer is really not that horrible." <laughs> I mean, there's a whole industry in in Soviet journalism and in Soviet movie making uh, about making foreigners. Approve of us, but it doesn't mean we're not xenophobic. <laughs> it doesn't mean we're more open to the world. It simply means we're less secure in who we are. Who we
2: are. What about in terms of like the power of popular culture when it comes to science fiction? I mean, t- this is maybe more true of the of Americans today than it was. Even during the any point in the Cold War, but when I think of of like the popular appeal of science fiction right now, I mean there is like hard sci-fi that has to do with space exploration and things like that. But I think that probably a lot of the superhero you know movies they qualify as science fiction. I mean some of them are are very science fiction, and you've got kids dressing up as as characters from these films, and they're probably not reading. The books about them, but they're may, maybe they're reading the comic books, I guess, like that's, that's not unheard of, obviously. And so I wonder, is there anything in Soviet science fiction that carries similar appeal? Because I know I've had Russian friends who grew up reading science fiction, it's a part of their identity, but it's not so much, it's not like, does it, it wasn't necessarily cosplay for them the way it is for Americans. Like how do those two s- compare?
1: American comic book culture, especially the superhero culture, is not something that was possible in the Soviet Union. Simply because all of our culture was very politicized and very rigidly ideologized, we had to science fiction had to defend a certain type of idea that was compatible or aligned with the party ideals. And a superpowered individual who goes, you know, who can do amazing things all by his own is not really a party ideal. <laughs> We're more about the collective and the uh, and the historical imperative and, and and the class struggle. Uh, so when you, when you read science, of, science fiction of the classical Soviet authors from the olden days, it's all about very high space exploration, space opera, where these uh, you know, heroic cosmonauts are conquering the galaxy, and uh, in some really over-the-top examples, probably fighting like Mars capitalism, trying to liberate the Martian, the Martian working class. But in some of the better examples, it's still, it's more about the idea it's more about the advancement of human knowledge. It's more about the advancement of human thought. And so obviously it was not the same way. And, and we didn't have a superhero culture at all. But our better uh, authors, like the Strogatsky brothers, who are definitely the best Soviet adult-oriented uh, science fiction writers, they tried to make it more about who we are as humans they try to make it about the conflicts that tear us apart maybe some of their their aliens and alien cultures are basically just reflections of our base self so they have this whole series about uh, humans in the 23rd 24th century advancing beyond the bounds of the solar system and con- not really conquering but exploring other planets and trying to maybe steer them on the right path but it always ends disastrously because you can't mess around with other cultures without you know facing the precautions and without, you know, the law of unintended consequences type of thing. It's very Star trek in this way. Star Trek with its prime directive, but it's less idealistic than Star Trek and probably more realistic. And again, it doesn't have anything to do with us being more open to <laughs> foreign cultures. It's just, it's just these two intellectual writers uh, exploring humanity through this vehicle. And uh, uh, Kir Bulichov, who was more of a child or children oriented writer, he did put some scary monsters in there. he He had some uh, he had some conflict.
2: Do you think that Soviet science fiction movies would have had broader appeal internationally if they'd had? Like the kind of budgets and special effects that we see in Hollywood today, because I mean, like some of the best, some of the best like Soviet science fiction movies, they they, they are respected and even you know beloved by cinephiles outside of the Soviet Union today. But it's still a very narrow audience, I think, because it's just it, it, and this is I, you know I was just I was just rewatching bits of what is it Kin Zaza is that how you say it. Ooh. And it's a it's a wonderful movie, but it's the pacing is so slow and the set design is so minimalistic. I mean, like it contributes. It's all it, you know. It works with like what they're trying to do, but you know, I like I, while I was doing the dishes yesterday, I was watching you know like Captain of America: Civil War, and they're you know they're like throwing cars at each other, and like granted that's much lower entertainment, but I, it, it, it grabbed my eye. We have some weapon systems offline. They what? Oh, you got You're gonna have to take this into the shop. Who's speaking? It's your conscience. We don't talk a lot these days.
0: Ready? Deploying fire suppression system.
1: Uh oh. And that has to do with who was making these movies. Because Kinzadzai was made by Danelia, who is uh, known for his comedies for the most part. And he made this into this very satirical, very tongue-in-cheek comic, basically parody of the science fiction genre. And it is very, very minimalistic. And it's intentionally so and it's all in the in you know he's using tremendous actors on there and, uh, it's uh, and the way they interact to the, to the soviet perestroika era late 80s era late 80s era viewers it'll be very recognizable i mean the characters even the alien characters are very recognizable and it's it's a big metaphor there's for racism for uh, for classism and you know we'd be watching it and we're like, oh yeah, that's that that's pretty. Cool. But it wouldn't probably play with Western audiences in 2021 the same way. And then you look at Stalker, the f- famous film made by Tarkovsky, and it's it's based on, on the Strugatsky brothers' novels, uh, but it's made by Tarkovsky, which means like there's three and a half people in the world who love it, and maybe ten people who understand it. It's it's very very highbrow uh, cinematography. It, it's brilliantly made. But it's not mass entertainment for sure.
2: In that Twitter thread that I mentioned earlier, you said that watching The Running Man in, in 1988, a year after it was released in the states, it uh, turned your world on its head. And I wanted if if you could say, I wondered if you could say more about both like the experience of seeing this movie, and I, I imagine others like it. Was a sort of it was a a moment in your life that you you remember to this day, and I was I was wondering if you could just describe for say like the Americans listening to this this podcast, like what is it what is it what did it feel like to discover you know the '80s action movie as a Soviet guy?
1: Well, that was the first real American film
2: I ever watched. It's, it's real, man. It's that's as real as it gets, too. I'll agree with that. <laughs>
1: and I'm, I'm even really struggle to remember what films I saw, what American-made films I saw before. Oh, yeah, there's like The Magnificent Seven, some of the Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, which are like Italian-American, and Tarzan, which were actually brought by the Soviet soldiers as trophies from Germany after World War II. So the 50s and the 60s, the Soviet baby boom generation grew up watching Tarzan. That was a huge deal. But... The first like real non-approved American film I ever saw was The Running Man in 88. I remember it was during the Euro 88. That's how I remember it. I was at my friend's house in Odessa and they had this, they had a VCR. So they popped the tape in and it, uh, the VCR did not have a decoder. So, so from the Palsy cam to the VHS system. So it was black and white and it was dubbed horribly. All the characters were in one voice. A very nasal, very grating Russian voice who actually, the the guy who did, that guy did all American films by himself, all the characters, and he's, he's a legend now in Russia, like everybody associates Hollywood Hollywood with that very, the guy sounded like he had a, he had a 40 year old nasal problem, mean just, it's real, real bad. But anyway, but the film completely destroyed all of my perceptions of what the movie is. You know, I've never seen a horror film before. i never seen an action film before. I've never seen Schwarzenegger before, <laughs> and I never knew people could be like that. And every, every single scene from the beginning to the end. And then the first scene of that movie is a uh, helicopter mowing down people, with machine guns, and then after this is just nonstop action, you know, nonstop, really over the top characters being killed in over the top ways by this incredible piece of meat <laughs> you know? and always delivering one-liners poorly translated but still i'll be
0: back only in a rerun me yeah, and my big mouth we should have taken the trip to hawaii i had the shirt for it but you fucked it up drop dead i don't do requests here is sub-zero now Plane Zero! Hey! Hey, hey T. Yolka hey.
1: And I spent the next two months, I think, because I saw it in the summer and we were I was not in school. I spent the next two months retelling it, this film, frame by frame, to every single one of my friends until they got absolutely annoyed with me and tired and tried to avoid me. <laughs> I guess it loses a lot in retelling. But it's it was just such a such an enormously life-changing experience too for me and around that time schwarzenegger stallone and jackie chan and chuck norris all of these action films became very very popular in the soviet union so all of my friends suddenly had all the posters around the walls of these guys and i tried to see as many films with them as possible so what happened was late 80s early 90s they had the illicit they'll call them video salons spring up all over the country and basically, what the video salon was was somebody's basement where you would go, you pay one ruble, which was twice as much as any movie in a Soviet movie theater would usually cost. Uh, you paid one ruble, usually to a guy with tattooed fingers, who <laughs> and then you'd sit around the semicircle on chairs around a regular TV, and a guy would come in, pop the pop in the videotape, and you'd hear that same nasal voice again, but now it's mostly in color. And they only ever showed two. Genres. One was what they called "bojevik," which meant action, violent action film, usually with some kind of a karate-based <laughs> plot, and the other was called pornuka, which was uh, porn, mostly mostly light porn or uh, just erotica.
2: The circle circle came in handy for those I imagine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, for, for most Soviet citizens, any view of a female breast was hardcore porn. So we had low standards <laughs> but that was and i remember like uh, handwritten handwritten bills or handwritten billboards all over the place in in, in my, in my uh, and they were advertising films like the killer cyborg which was
2: terminator terminator yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> what else was what well, the big ones oh alpha force was huge Everybody loved it. Oh, look! It's it's the Arabs. They're supposed to be our friends, and this American guy is kicking them. Yeah, <laughs> <I> mean, <that's, laughs> that was great. Oh, Rocky and Rambo, obviously, especially the ones when uh, when the Soviets are the bad guys. That was just, just the whole exotic value of watching us as the bad guys, especially very unrealistically depicted as they are in Rocky Four and Rambo Three. That was just. That was a hoot That was like a comedy. It was it was so great. It was just the, the, the being being subversive, watching that crap, uh, being subversive, watching violence, and at the same time being entertained by very unrealistic portrayals of the Soviets. That was like a triple whammy. It was huge. <laughs>
2: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from Anandita Banerjee, an associate professor of comparative literature at Cornell University, where she chairs the humanities concentration in the environment and sustainability program, and wears several other academic and administrative hats. Also, I spoke to journalist Slava Malamud about his personal experiences watching Soviet and American science fiction in the USSR in the 1980s. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in. It will help put this program in front of more ears. Thank you for listening and come back soon.